This week, we're taking issue with your tax dollars, the state of Iowa, and bizarre legal arguments. Tax revenues are down in Massachusetts, so Maura Healy's cutting her budget. The state of Iowa is about to hold its caucus, and just how immune to prosecution is former President Trump? I'm Corey. I'm Matt. I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I'm Corey Smith with NBC10 Boston, joined by NBC10 Boston political commentator and my ad issue co-host Sue O'Connell. And Matt's back. We're back. NBC political reporter Matt Pritchard, fresh off the birth of his beautiful daughter. Uh, how are things going? It's going fantastic. Sleeping a lot. Brooklyn is sleeping enough, I would say. Four-hour increments. We got to get up. We got to do stuff. But I've heard worse horror stories. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt, I missed you. I don't you know, really say that to people who. That's good to hear, yeah, you know, but you. but you guys were fantastic. I listened a few times. Corey, right. always nice enough to remind people that I would be coming yes, back. Yes. So <laughs> thank you Matt? for doing that, yes, we, didn't write, we didn't write him out of the show. I know, yeah. Uh, look, not much has happened since you've been gone. No, anyway, nothing. So, Seems like a know, casual yeah, December. The, the, yeah, the union <laughs> still holds. Um, all right, let's start with the big sort of bombshell news of the week. Uh, tax revenues in Massachusetts are short. So Governor Healy has let legislators and state agencies know that she is going to have to cut the budget. That'll be $375 million or so uh, coming out of the budget. Um, obviously, a lot of consternation from the agencies who are impacted, a lot of consternation from some to the left of Governor Healy who are basically saying, see, I told you this is what happens when you cut taxes uh, for folks at the top. It's social services and folks at the bottom who suffer. So just your thought on the fact that after the supplemental budget fight, after the late budget passing by the legislature, that we are here once again talking about the budget. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why this keeps being a surprise, this, this lack of tax revenue. This is not the first time this has happened. I think it's the fourth or fifth uh, quarter that the tax revenue is not what it is. So why are we projecting <laughs> that it's going to be higher if it's going in the wrong direction? I don't think we know where the drop is. I, as I said before we started the podcast, uh, I have more questions about this than I do opinions. Like, I, I heard from lots of retailers and restaurateurs that December was great, November was great, that people were returning, uh, the city was filled with tourists, more tourists than I've seen in a long time, and that's revenue. So why are we falling short of projections? Are the projections wrong? We keep saying the revenue's wrong, but maybe the projection is wrong. Uh, and I, I'd like answers on that, right? That's, those are the questions I have. And I also feel that uh, Healy has, was taken a bit by surprise by this. It seems to me there's not a cohesive message coming out of her office as to uh, what they're going to cut, how they're going to cut, uh, and also just telling people what the cuts are. I mean, we didn't get this information. Mm -hmm. Right. I actually, I, I have the information. I actually had to reach out to a state legislator right. to find out what the information was, wh where the cuts were actually coming. And that came after several agencies or, or uh, local groups came out and said, hey, she's, she wants to cut this. This is going to fall on the backs of vulnerable families. I'm curious what you made of her, and I, I believe I'm just, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. I know she was on the radio and was yep. asked straight up, do you regret the tax cuts? And she said no. Right, again, because we, uh, we don't know what this problem is. I think this is a projection problem, um, not necessarily a tax collection problem. 
I, and I don't know who's looking into that. I mean, this is the answers that I think we need to know. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, uh, as much as I understand that when you are promised or expect money in a budget that's going to come to you, like if you have $100,000 to spend and your budget for 2022 is to spend $99,999, and you say, well, next year we're going to have $200,000. You tell people you're going to get it. Turns out you're not then you tell them they're not getting it. You're not necessarily cutting their services. You're cutting what you promised that they would get. Obviously, they made plans on this. They may have hired people. I mean, I just think there's a lot more here. And I think if Healy wants to come out of this situation looking like she has command of the situation, she has to get command of the situation and really take this narrative and make clear what's happening. Because if I'm confused, I can imagine just about everybody else. So here are some of the, 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 the higher uh, 9C reductions. Mass health fee for service payments, $294 million reduction. Commonwealth. And remember, just to interrupt, remember there was miscommunication mm -hmm. about that. Like at first they said it's because the numbers of enrollment were dropping right. and then she backed that off. So it's, that's like the first line item. Commonwealth Care Trust Fund, a $50 million reduction. Community Residential Services, $40 million reduction. And Transitional Aid to Families with Dependent Children Grants, $13 million reductions. Matt, when we when you last left us, <laughs> sure. um, you had just come through the supplemental budget process and finally seeing that done. Now here you are back yeah. and there's a, a budget problem. I think that's something that just is sort of shocking. It's like we just came out of this. We went through that whole supplemental budget fight and how long it took to get that over the finish line. And it was like, finally, that's done. We can move on to the next fiscal year and focusing on that. But here we are back in the weeds yet again. Now, a couple of things that's been kind of interesting as I kind of catch up on this whole issue is the fact that, you know, Massachusetts has a large rainy day fund that they could be using to catch these different issues that they're going uh, to be cutting from. But they say this isn't a massive budgetary crisis, so there's no need to we dip into that. We hate to use that. that, Rainy, but we hate to use that fund. Fair enough. So, I mean, you've been here often yep. enough to know. So, so I guess what is the red button that causes them to use yeah, that? Yeah, I can't remember when the last time is that we used it. I mean, it's it's like it's a, it's a rainy day fund and it hasn't rained hard enough yet. And we know when we're talking about budget cuts, you can get sort of caught up in the alphabet soup of agencies that you've probably never heard of. Uh, but just, just search social media, a quick search of X. You've got organizations like Lift Our Kids Massachusetts talking about uh, a, the, the elimination of the 10% increase to cash assistance levels, which were scheduled to hit April 1st of this year. So to get to your point about the projections, uh, the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, says you know survivors rely on economic assistance programs to save to, to pay bills access health insurance and more uh they're urging more healy to sort of reverse the the cuts of this cash assistance where where does she go from here uh politically and you talked earlier we talked earlier today about um this is more healy kind of I guess learning to legislate maybe but instead of just being the agency head who is being told you have to cut, she is now the governor telling agencies you have to cut. My favorite thing about politics, and I, I don't know if you guys share this, is when someone is in a position that they weren't in before, mm -hmm. right? So she was a law enforcement person. She's, she's a lawyer, attorney general, right? She, her job certainly can negotiate going in and suing President Trump and representing the people of Massachusetts in lawsuits and, and wrongdoings. And now she's the boss, right? And she's dealing with lawmakers <laughs> who are their, no matter where they're from, lawmakers are their own breed, right? So. Her skills as a negotiator are going to be important here, but also her skills of understanding what deals she has to cut and how she has to placate lawmakers in order to keep them on her side while she goes through this 
this troubling period that's going to have a lot of people mad at her. When you're a Republican like Charlie Baker and you're the governor and you make cuts, you don't care if the state lawmakers are mad at you or if the progressives are mad at you. But if you're a Democrat, no matter how close you are to Charlie Baker in style, it's going to be a challenge. So I'm interested to see how she negotiates this. Uh, I think about Deval Patrick as governor, uh, also not a lawmaker. He was a lawyer. Uh, he worked in the Civil Rights Department with Obama. Uh, a lot of the challenges that he had as governor, getting the budget uh, numbers that we now know we needed for the MBTA, couldn't get that through a democratically controlled statehouse. So these are the kind of tests. That, is she going to develop the skills to be able to manage this herd of cats and keep the left happy? Uh, or is she just going to be stuck going, why the heck did I take we, this job? We, we've heard Republican <laughs> legislators in the State House say Democrats need to work with us more on fiscal responsibility. I'm curious, while you were covering the supplemental budget fight, which was a, a large part of it dedicated to the, the emergency shelter crisis, did you ever get the sense that people were concerned about tax revenues falling short? Or did you ever get any sense that people thought we might end up here? No, I mean, we were talking with the main lawmakers on the State House that deal with the budget on a day-to-day -day basis, and none of them brought anything like that up. But I think it just lends itself, when you look back on the supplemental budget fight, it lends itself to what Sue is saying, is that the governor is going to have to walk this tightrope even more finely than she probably would have had to, because now people can see the fractures that are in that Democratic supermajority, certainly the Democrats don't want to pour uh, gasoline onto that fire and show that they're even more disorganized and, and, and can't find common ground here and get things across the finish line. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, we, we've been talking in the newsroom about you can basically go through this entire list and find real people yep. that are going to be impacted by the cuts. And we know that the governor has said she is paraphrasing again, sort of looking out for the least of these, but this is real money. These, this is real dollars that's going to impact people's lives. Uh, so we're going to continue covering, covering and if you don't have it, part of it, you can't give it. I mean, right. that's sort of the under the underpinning part here is that the, these budget dis discussions are always like this. This is based on revenue, projected mm -hmm. revenue that they didn't get. It's not based on, I want a smaller government. And that's also the trick that she's in. Like Charlie Baker could say, we're spending too much on these things. She has said, we need to spend this money, but now we don't have it. Well, and one other observation that I had, typical reporter going to ask a question to other reporters. <laughs> Essentially, I look at this and I go, she doesn't have to actually make this move through the legislature. You said she has to try and keep everyone in a row and try and keep everybody happy, but she doesn't have to actually get something through the state house, which is just kind of interesting to me when you consider supplemental budget had to go through the state house. The normal budget has to go through the state house. So why does a tax revenue uh, false short, not have to go through that process. I'm going to say King George. Yeah, just blame it, just blame it all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna stay on top of of that. All right, let's move from Beacon Hill to City Hall. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu uh, gave her second State of the City address uh, this week. Touched on a, a number of issues. Uh, housing, parks, education, public safety, uh, and a speech that lasted about 30 minutes or so was interrupted at the beginning um, by some uh, folks calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll get to that in a little bit. So you just want to get your initial take. We were on the air covering this live and we were both struck. Um, and I think the, the, the portion of the speech that a lot of folks are talking about was the end yeah. where she gave this sort of personal anecdote. Um, where she, you could tell, was getting emotional, but as we were looking out in the audience, you saw people, grown men, grown men wiping grown men, their eyes, grown as white she, men wiping yeah, their eyes, <laughs> as she, re, as she recounted the story about how um, her mom uh, and her didn't have much while she was growing up, but on Tuesdays 
they would go to the museum and, and sort of spend the day just immersed in, in culture. Uh, and to use that anecdote as a jumping off point that the first two Sundays of every month, they're going to make the museums open to BPS students and their families for free. Just your thought, overall thoughts about this. Yeah, I, you know, I, last night um, at the beginning of the speech, which I think this was, the first of all, I think it was the best speech she's ever given. And I think it was a great leap forward for her and step up in her orating skills and her presentation skills. But uh, she is kind of like the reincarnation of, of uh, former mayor, late mayor Tom Menino, when it comes to counting how many potholes were filled. That's something that Tom Menino, Tom Menino used to ride through the streets looking for potholes. That was his thing. And her beginning of the speech after she uh, gave a shout out to the Dorchester Eagles, counting all the speed bumps mm -hmm. that have been installed and sort of doing these, you know, dweeby, geek, nerdy things and then ending with this sort of soaring personal revelation about you know lifting her being lifted up and wanting to lift the children of Boston up which kind of reminded me a little bit of Bill Clinton mm -hmm. right so I, I woke up this morning thinking about the speech that if Tom Menino and Bill Clinton had a baby it would be Michelle Wu and uh, it was really hard to find things in the speech to criticize she did a great job delivering it she's a little mushy you know when you wake up the next morning mm -hmm. Uh, kind of celebrating Mass and Cass, uh, no right. tense as a success. Yeah. Well, I'm on you know Mass Ave almost every day, and the same number of people, give or take a hundred, are there. They're just spread out down right. the street. So I don't know if it's a success yet, but ending on that aspirational lift up, and um, you know, really leaning into, you know, in the news business, <laughs> no matter what city you're in, we spend all the time covering the worst things, mm -hmm. right? And then you're like. Oh, we actually do live in a great city. What a great city. And that's kind of what I, I stepped away So a couple of the highlights that she hit, record low for gun violence. Um, she, she discussed that for a little bit, talked about the police contract uh, that she negotiated, which includes, you know, uh, changes to the arbitration laws and, and how officers who commit the worst sort of crimes uh, can now be held accountable. Uh, she talked about, you know, the doubling the contracts for uh, minority-owned and women businesses for city jobs. Uh, she talked about the start of her Squares and Streets plan, which we've talked about on that issue. Um, and housing, more ADUs or granny annexes, 3,000 public housing units. For schools, we mentioned the museums, which she talked about more capital projects happening. Um, and zoning, she, don't forget zoning. And zoning, and zoning. <laughs> uh, she, she didn't really directly go at the, the bombshell report that came out about the fact that BPS might have to close a bunch of its schools due to low enrollment. She also on the housing front did not mention rent control even and I, maybe maybe she did it knowing that Governor Maura Healey was going to be sitting front and center and this is a problem for the legislature to figure out but she I guess did not take the opportunity to say hey Governor Healey we, we need you yeah. you know step up and you know maybe put Healey in a bad position mm -hmm. being you know front and center but Matt um, you watch this from home what, what did you make of, of the speech? Yeah I mean I think she hit a lot of the top line items that people are concerned about I go back to the city council races pretty much every candidate brought up housing as a key part of this and mm -hmm. you know I think when you listen to the speech there are some real positives to take away but when she says they're gonna look you know for 3,000 or so you know places start to sort of seek out places where 3,000 units could go they Political reporter in me says that we're a ways off from that actually happening, that you're just beginning to look at this. That means we're five, ten years away from that really coming to fruition. And so I think, you know, that's how you read between the lines of that. It's like, that's great, but how are we going to get from point A to point B? So on the housing issue, you know, I think that's something a lot of people are concerned about. She addressed it, but I, I really want to see those top line numbers and how she's going to get uh, to the finish line. And of course, this is her midterm address. Right. Right, so uh, what she said last night 
or what she said uh, at the State of the City, is what's going to propel if she runs for re-election. This is what's going to inform uh, that bid. And uh, I was, I was uh, pointing out some of the old school folks that she had strategically, not just her, everybody does this, I don't want to pick on Michelle Wu, but you know, she had um, a whole bunch of people in the front row that were supporting her and, and not, didn't have to be there like the city council, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but were there supporting her enthusiastically. So if there was a shot of that on the screen, it was sort of sending a message to anybody who wants to run against her. These are the people I have locked up. Any of those seating arrangements really stand out to you folks yeah. sitting next to each other? Yeah, Mayor, Mayor uh, former Mayor uh, Kim Janey was right there enthusiastically supporting her. Uh, more, um, Maureen uh, Feeney was right there next to her who was an old style, uh, ran against Mayor Menino uh, for mayor and really represents a, a, a certain constituency in the city. And uh, just throughout the audience, there were a number of folks that were just representing their people, however you look at it. So it was, it would have been, uh, I don't know which Lord of the Rings movie you would like to <laughs> reference in this, uh, Matt, but just sending a message that these are my people. If you're coming for me, you know, you're going to have to get through this. Well, speaking of the audience at the beginning of the speech, there were uh, some pro-Palestinian protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. They unfurled banners from the balcony of the MGM Music Hall. Um, Mayor Wu acknowledged their presence there and said this is democracy in action and from the, the sound of it, because we couldn't actually see it, uh, it seems like those folks were, were ushered off, um, you know, quickly and peacefully ultimately arrested, uh, according to our Michael Rosenfeld, who was at, at the hall that night. You thought she handled that pretty well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much all you can do in that moment, especially if you're trying to say, you know, protest is an important part of our democracy. And by the way, Boston is not alone in these sort of right. things happening. I mean, the Colorado State Legislature opened up their legislative session today, and there were protesters unveiling a banner across the balcony. So this is happening in Boston and in Denver and in California all across the country. And there's the problem for the protesters, yeah. right? Because I realized last night, at what point does this stop being news? that they're there for mm. them. I mean, forget about, uh, I'm not taking a side on what they're saying or not saying, but if you can predict, a, predict that every single public event, whether it's first night or a state house opening or a mayor's still be the, at the governor's state of the Commonwealth next mm -hmm. week, certainly, it stops being newsworthy. Yeah. So uh, there's gonna have to be some consideration there about how these protests are actually forwarding the message that they want to. And we saw, we saw President Biden's speech uh, at Mother Emanuel uh, Amy Church in South Carolina get interrupted by, by protesters. And I think to your point, I think the, when it is still news, it becomes less about what the protesters are calling for. And yes, part of that is because we know what they're calling right. for. Some of it becomes the optics and the context in which the protests occurred. So when he was interrupted down in South Carolina, much of the social media discourse is, is it appropriate or not to have a protest inside of a church, mm. a black church at that, a yeah. black church that is part of one of the worst moments in American history, um, but also, as some point out, a black church that was set up because they had nowhere else to, 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 to go and was formed out of protest. Um, so, so, it's, so it's interesting, and, and it's, it, that's always that fine line uh, for protests like this from looking out from the outside in, um, you know, at, at what point, does getting your message across sort of keep people from empathizing with you and sympathizing with you? There's a, there's a video on social media right now of a, a father, I believe in Brooklyn, who was on his way to pick up his daughter mm -hmm. and the protesters were blocking the road. He ultimately shoves one of them out of the way and drives, but it's that, it's that where's that line between, hey, I agree with you, but 
your 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 efforts to make me uncomfortable and to confront this problem are also causing real world problems for for me. And also when it's when it's a parent trying to pick up their kid, yeah. you know, it's it's that's a tough line to 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 balance on. So um, so, yeah, so state of the city, we'll see what, what happens. She she, you know, going back to her last state of the city, I remember we went through the whole checklist of what she was able to accomplish. And, you know, whether it's the planning and zoning reforms um, and, and other things that she wanted, she she was able to get some of that stuff done. Um, so we'll have a checklist for uh, this year once, you know, once uh, she starts getting going on some of the uh, things that she laid out. If the democracy holds. If the democracy holds. <laughs> Speaking of which, um, the Iowa caucus, just a few days away now. Uh, Matt's bags are packed. Sean behind the camera, his bags are packed. You guys are headed to the Hawkeye State. Yeah. Uh, bags how many, packed with how many, many jackets <laughs> do you have? Took the words out of my you mouth. You have a hat, right? Our colleague Katie Tour in, uh, in New York has been calling out the embeds for not wearing hats when they're on television. Fair so enough. make sure you wear a yeah, hat. Yeah, well, you got to look good, Sue. The <laughs> hair, you make it so just so. It's got to look good on TV. No, I have our, our NBC uh, beanie and all the warm weather clothes. It's going to be. I think the high at one point is going to be seven, and then basically mm -hmm. that's as high as we're going to get. What a way to pick a president, huh? So I know, I know, yeah. And it, it, for people that don't know, the, the Iowa caucuses are a fascinating process, the way they do this, where they just get a bunch of people in the room, and everybody just argues and talks about what they think, and then they nominate someone out of their I caucus. Really, it really kind of is what the most, the most public voting yes. that we have yeah. in, in the country to see people say, your candidate's going to lose, come to my side. Well, not only that, but we have a bully running. I mean, yeah. I don't think we could just, there's no one's going to disagree that Donald Trump is not a bully, mm -hmm. right? And <laughs> if you're in a room and you're my neighbor and you owe me $10 because I went and got the bread last week, I'm going to bully you to make sure you vote for, vote for, my, my, for Trump, come stand in my corner. You know, the whole other thing, you have to show up, stand in a corner, spend the night. And a small percentage of people in Iowa actually participate. I mean, I just, it drives me crazy, the Iowa caucus. We're going to see if Midwest Nice really holds up. It's, I mean, you know, politics has a way of stripping down any sort of politeness that anybody has. So it's, it's going to be fascinating. And we've, I'm sure you were about to bring it up, but just the polling is just going yep. into this yep. is fascinating. When you look, Donald Trump still up over 50%, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis neck and neck at 18% mm -hmm. or so. So it's like, there's also sort of this feeling of like, we got to go through this, of course, because that's our process and that's how it works. But are we just moving towards the ending that we all know is inevitable, that Donald Trump has this nomination locked up? I think the question is, as often is, are the people who are picking up the phone on the polls, are they going to do the same thing when they actually go to cast their vote? Because sometimes when people get in a room, they have a conversation, they get ushered into one corner or another, they just change the way they think once they're confronted uh, with the actual decision. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see the, just the optics of it because we know Trump supporters, they're, they're for their guy. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen the best of them and just peacefully doing their thing. We've seen the worst of them. As we sit here, you know, just past the uh, third anniversary of January 6th. So it will be interesting to see how you have the, the sort of Trump folks versus the DeSantis folks versus the, the, the Haley folks. Um, is this it for Ron DeSantis? Does he have to yep. come in a respectable second? It, well, let me ask it this way. Is it more important for him to be not that far behind Trump or far in front of Nikki Haley? Far in front of Nikki Haley. Yeah. Um, I, Trump is going to win Iowa. I think he's going to win Iowa by a lot. The battle is for second place and not just second place. All I think Nikki Haley has to do in Iowa, because DeSantis is all in in Iowa, is beat DeSantis. Mm -hmm. 
DeSantis has to really beat Nikki Haley uh, by a large margin in a second place, whatever that ends up being. And uh, it's, I, I, again, Iowa is so crazy. I'm still, you know, shocked that Pete Buttigieg won mm. uh, for the Democrats. Uh, and it's such a crazy process. It's impossible to predict. But we do know coming out of it, that's, that's what I think has to happen. Yeah. I'm curious, um, so the, the, there have been a couple of wow statements made uh, over the, on the campaign trail, both in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, Nikki Haley got dinged for saying, you know, what happens in Iowa gets corrected in New Hampshire. She had to sort of not even, not necessarily walk it back, but she did say, look, if, if I didn't love Iowa, I wouldn't be going there day after day to campaign. Mm -hmm. You spent a lot of time in New Hampshire. Yeah. Do they... Is, is there a rivalry, I guess, or do they see it as a rivalry? The, you know, Iowa goes first, we go second, and what usually happens in New Hampshire, you know, well, really what, doesn't really have that much of a bearing on the final outcome. It, it, no, it has a bearing on the race. Right. You know, so it's, I, I, I always go back and look to see who has won New Hampshire mm -hmm. that actually goes on to win, and it's mm -hmm. no one. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it, it's, it's kind of like an energy boost. I'm trying to, it's like Mario when you get one of those, yeah, you know, you, yeah. you're driving and you, drive get, the box, you yeah. get something yeah. and it goes, bling, you yeah. know, and that's what it is. Do you say, do you, yeah, do you, do you get a sense that New Hampshire folks care what well, Iowa does? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so. Frankly, I think New Hampshire folks think they are the authority when it comes to presidential picking. Yeah. And so, you know, Iowa, that's cute over there. We appreciate you guys doing your thing. But ultimately, we're the ones, we're the first real primary. We're the first ones with people actually going and signing their name to a specific vote. I think that's how New Hampshire folks see it. Um, one person who's not in the race, but I think does have a lot riding on New Hampshire, what happens after is Governor Chris Sununu. Mm -hmm. He has said multiple times publicly, Trump will not be the nominee. If he walks out of New Hampshire with a big victory and ultimately becomes the, the nominee, what, 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 is, what does that mean, I guess, for Sununu politically? Because it sounds like he says he's still going to support the Republican candidate. Yeah, he candidate. said he would, he would vote for whomever the Republican candidate is. But this is, I think that this, this, holy, this whole Haley-Trump issue, I'm just going to get DeSantis out of, the, out of the mix here for the sake of the, the, the metaphor. You know, it's like when you're on a boat that's tipped, you know, and history is going to correct it. And you want to be on the right side of the boat <laughs> when it corrects, right? Like here in Massachusetts for same-sex marriage, there were a ton of Democrats, state lawmakers who were against it. But as soon as it started to be clear that same-sex marriage was going to pass, they stepped over to the other side and now their bio said, supported same-sex marriage. And I think with Nikki Haley, that's how it is. That Trump, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that he's definitely going to be the nominee. I definitely think there's a lot of fight left in Haley. Uh, and Sununu uh, has rightly taken that step early. Um, you have Cheney who can't do it and Romney who, who doesn't want to endorse her because he says it's the kiss of death. So I think what Sununu has done is put himself in a leadership position for as Representative Stephen Lynch called them, the normal Republicans uh, last week who uh, don't want anything to do with Trump but see a future. So I think his stock, no matter what happens to Haley, I think his stock has gone up. Here's a hypothetical for you. Yeah. Let's say Nikki Haley pulls the upset. She needs a vice president. Oh, absolutely. Or no, I'm talking about in the race. Overall. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. Uh -huh. She pulls the upset, gets the nomination. Sununu, VP? Sure. You ride that? Because just talking to him, he seems like a guy who has more aspirations than just being mm -hmm. the governor of New Hampshire. Although, we, you know, we met his young son, so I know he's got, yeah. he's got family things to think about. Yeah. But he seems like someone who cares enough 
about public service to, to maybe do that. She's more conservative than him, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there's a balance there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a great ticket. I, I think if you put that up, I think, you know, a Biden-Harris ticket is going to have to really fight uh, to beat that. I also think, I think it's worth floating out there, the Chris Christie in the room of having him on the ticket mm -hmm. with Nikki Haley as well, because Despite the fact that this is, what, his third rodeo going through mm -hmm. this, he's had a really strong race this year. I mean, I think he's drummed up more support than a lot of people would have expected him to, and maybe he's changed enough minds to make the ticket. But would that, I mean, if you need the MAGA base to come out for you, it was, I think Chris Christie really rubbed some of those folks the wrong way. And even as, as careful as Nikki Haley has tried to be, um, not going after the policy parts of Donald Trump, but going after the personality and the, the chaos that surrounds him. I, just, I think I think even she's maybe rubbed some of his base the wrong way to the point where they may not vote for somebody else. They may just stay home. I just, yeah, I think that's it. I, I think the MAGA base, no matter who it is, if it isn't Trump, are just going to be so frustrated that they may not take part. They're just going to write Trump in. Right. Or write him in. Yeah. There'll be a yes. write in effort. <laughs> oh, Much God, like the write in effort for New Hampshire. I just saw it. All right. Final topic. Um, and perhaps maybe the, one of the most bizarre stories that we saw this week. Uh, Donald Trump uh, in, in federal court in front of a three-judge panel trying to argue that he is immune from prosecution for his alleged role in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Um, his lawyers made the argument that a president in his official capacity is immune from prosecution unless they are impeached and convicted. Um, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason. Uh, one of the judges, I believe this is correct, put forth the hypothetical. So let's just say he orders the assassination of one of his opponents. With Navy SEAL. Navy by, SEAL. By SEAL Team 6. SEAL Team 6. Is it your argument that he cannot be prosecuted for that unless he is impeached and convicted in the Senate, to which Trump's lawyers basically said, yeah, that's what we're going for here. That's, I mean, just your thoughts on the, on the that, that legal argument. It's, 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 so I, I, I would understand it, the protections that the presidents have for civil cases. Uh, and I understand the Nixon example of, you know, if you fire someone, can they come at, and your president, can they come after you with a civil case? And I understand how easy anyone can sue anybody in civil court at any time. And I think that's what the court is trying to protect presidents from. But to, I mean, this is how bad it is that you can be running for president and your lawyer can go make that case basically that you will become this all, if elected, this all-powerful individual, this dictator who can order your forces to do anything at all without Congress. I mean, you know, we can make arguments that I, I, I often love to go to, um, you know, li liberal parties and say that every president is a war criminal in one way or another just to, you know, get things mixed up. <laughs> I mean, you can argue that presidents have done illegal things or immoral things, but they usually do them with the support of Congress, mm -hmm. the support of the Senate, with the support of the other, uh, other executive branches. The argument they're making is that you can murder someone with, on the government's dime <laughs> with the government's employees illegally and be immune. And, it's just, and that's, that's his defense. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I but and what the, the also the, the also the, the 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 comedy in it is is you know I guess laughing for the sake of not crying. Um, he's talked about wanting to prosecute Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Yep. But he's also arguing that Joe Biden would be immune right. to prosecution. I mean, it's just 
And, and look, we've, you've, you on the campaign trail, you, you've heard a lot of folks about talking about the fact that he has all these indictments against him. Um, I, yet it doesn't really seem like they've hurt him that often. And even when these shenanigans in court happen, it doesn't seem like much happens to his popularity one way or the other. No, I think, I mean, his base is very loyal and that they're willing to stick by him even through everything that's happened. And it almost seems like it's, as each one is stacked up on itself, it's sort of numbed them even further to all of them, you know, and made them feel like they're all just completely coming after him. It's almost mm -hmm. like more was worse for the situation if you're someone that's looking for an option that isn't Donald Trump. I also found it interesting in the courtroom when they just made the argument that in that moment, he wasn't really operating as commander-in-chief. I mean, he was just coming off of what essentially was a political campaign rally at the Ellipse at the White House. And so, you know, it's hard to sort of square that circle, if you will, of that, you know, while he was acting in his presidential duties, I don't think the day's events shows that when you look at it from morning to sundown. Yeah, so we will, uh, we will wait for a decision from that three-judge panel uh, to see what happens, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it. It will be in the Supreme Court. Everything will be at the Supreme Court. See if his name gets on the ballot in Colorado, Maine, and every other state where there are attempts to take him off the ballot. Um, all right, that's going to do it for this edition of Taking Issue. Thanks for coming back. Of course. <laughs> Safe travels. Uh, we're going to see Matt on Sunday. He's going to be previewing the Iowa caucus for us on at issue. We're also going to be talking about uh, talking to the folks behind the amazing HBO documentary Murder in Boston about the Charles Stewart case. Really excited to, to pick the brains of some really good reporters on such a seminal case in, in Boston's history. So that's going to be this Sunday at 1130 on NBC 10 Boston and looking ahead to next week, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm just going where you, the, wherever the you the, tell me to the go, Corey, the, I'm the going. The state of the Commonwealth is, is next week. <laughs> right. Um, but from 7.30 to 8, we're going to have live editions of Ad Issue discussing everything involving the Iowa caucus and, of course, counting down to the New Hampshire primary. We're going to have a slew of guests. Uh, maybe maybe get a candidate or two. We'll, we'll see. Fingers crossed if they want to come on and talk to us. Uh, so be sure to look for that. That's going to be 7.30 to 8 um, next week. Uh, or excuse me, the, the, the following. No, no, next week. It is next week. Just keep watching. I know, time's a flat sword. Uh, <laughs> next week on NBC 10 Boston. For Matt, for Sue, I'm Corey. We'll talk to you next week.